My name's Mike, one of the pastors on the team, wearer of an ugly sweater today. Uh, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see we're continuing a series, God With Us, marching us right toward Christmas Eve. And um, today, the topic is joy. So uh, we want to unwrap the joy boxes of our hearts today. And uh, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart underneath my ugly Christmas sweater. You know, you might want to give a round of applause. This is actually its own character today. Even lights up right here. All right. Um, hey, uh, now we're talking about joy and some of you are like, in Christmas season, I don't feel Christmas joy. I feel Christmas stress. Got all kinds of things going on, parties to rush to, presents to buy, the right gifts for the right people, all that kind of thing. Maybe your joy looks like this Christmas card of these three kiddos <laughs> celebrating joy. And if that's you, I want to offer you just a little joy therapy today. Uh, honestly, we search the interwebs high and low for the most joyful experience possible. So just receive this over Lake, receive this therapy today. There is nothing cuter than a kitten massaging a kitten. You're welcome. Some of you are purring right now, and that's great. Listen, if I could do anything, I would paint a picture that is so rich and so full and so vibrant that we would all begin to glow with joy like coils on an electric stovetop radiating warmth and light illuminated from within. That is the kind of message we're talking about joy and that's sort of what I want us to walk out of here with today. And if you want to follow along, you can see that we've got a, a bit of work to do as we try to unpack all all of this content about the joy that God with us provides. But as you see there, God with us means several things. And we want to take a look at what God with us means out of Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So the first thing we see from this verse, God with us means good news. God with us, God near to us, God present with us means good news. And the question then, what do you do with good news? You rejoice with good news. You rejoice when you hear it. You rejoice when you are a part of it. The, the Seahawks win, you rejoice, right? The 49ers lose, you rejoice. You get a job, you get a raise, you get a commendation, you rejoice. You get a girlfriend, you get engaged, you get married, you rejoice. You're giving birth to the Savior of the world. No, not that one? Um, that's what Mary heard from the angel. It was announced to her, you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And what did Mary do? This is in Luke 146. She began 
to rejoice. She has this incredible song called the Magnificat that she begins to praise the Lord with as she rejoices. And she lives out this truth that we see in Scripture. The truth is, because God is with us, we are free to rejoice. We are free. We are now liberated so that we can rejoice at any point in, in the story, no matter how difficult the circumstances might be. Paul writes this in Philippians 4.4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's a question. Are you known as a rejoicer? Is that a quality that people look at your life and they go, oh, that, that man, that, that woman, she is just constantly rejoicing in the Lord. Is, is that what people see about you? There's this passage in the scripture where Jesus sends out all of his disciples on a short-term mission trip, and they all go out into the neighboring villages and towns and, and the countryside, and they're preaching the good news, and they're healing, and, and they're, they're, uh, they're doing all this great stuff for the kingdom of God, and when they come back, they are on cloud nine. They're on a spiritual high. They come back. They're giving each other high fives. They're telling each other stories. They're, they're doing, uh, there's an illuminated man walking down the... Thank you so much for all of that Christmas joy. I love it. Yeah. That, I, I have sweater envy right now. But anyway, the disciples come back and they're just, they're so excited. They're, they're going, Jesus, you don't even know this. Even the, even the demons, even the evil spirits obey us when we command them in your name. And they're just flying high. And look what Jesus says. He says, don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. When was the last time you rejoiced because your name's written in the book of life? Because you know that you have been saved by Jesus and by the work of Jesus on the cross, that you have been loved and graced, forgiven and saved, and that forever and ever, amen, you're going to be perfected and glorified in union with Christ for all time. When's the last time that was rejoicing uh, an opportunity for you just to praise the Lord? And, and then you look at this. Scripture, rejoice in the Lord always. You realize that that is written in the imperative. Rejoice is a command, not a suggestion, not a hey, if you feel like it. This is a command being offered from the Lord to us. Rejoice. And it's so important that it's now repeated just a few words later. I say it again rejoice. Can you think of anywhere else in scripture where that's how God issues a command to his people? Do not murder. Again, I say to you, do not murder, right? It, it doesn't happen like that, but this is so important. God wants his people to be people who rejoice in him. And you know, we don't confront people on this one too often, do we? Isn't it funny? Like we, if somebody's like maybe caught up in adultery or something that we would confront them lovingly and gracefully, but we'd say, hey, this is not God's best for you. This is, this is wrecking havoc on your life and, and on everybody involved. This is not what's best. But, but do we ever do that when somebody d doesn't rejoice? No, you know what we do? We typically think, oh, they must be really mature in their faith because they're bummed out all the time, you know? 
And, and honestly, I, I, we don't have too many of these folks at Overlake, which I just thank the Lord for. But isn't it incredible that, that there, there's this idea sometimes in Christianity that the more Eeyore-like you are, the more mature you must be in your faith. They're just kind of the more complainy and sour and just downcast. Oh, they must be really righteous because they're just a bummer to hang out with, you know. No, no, this is an opportunity for us. We are invited into rejoicing and a lifestyle of rejoicing and, and to exhibit that character quality. And if you need something to rejoice in the Lord, let me just tell you, how about start with the fact that you're forgiven? So the scripture says this in Psalm 32, 1, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Uh, we are forgiven our sin, every one of us. We, we've all blown it, and that sin has now been forgiven and put out of sight, and so we have joy. We can delight in our relationship in the Lord. We're forgiven. Our names are written in the book of life. Salvation is a reason for us to rejoice. We're saved from sin. We're saved for joy. We're saved forever. Psalm 35, 9 says, my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. That's good news. And that's what the, the angel talks about. Don't be afraid for um, I am announcing to you this is good news, right? The, the, the birth of the Savior, good news. And then second fill-in of great joy. Luke 2.10, do not be afraid, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is not just like mediocre happiness. This is great joy. The, the level of joy, the amount of joy that's available, and, and the actual quality of the joy that comes from the Lord, this is a joy that strengthens us and empowers us. If you're filling in the blanks, joy sustains us. It holds us up and keeps us going. It builds us and gives us the ability to endure hardship. You know, if I choose to rejoice when I feel like complaining, I notice that something happens inside of me. And I want to challenge you to try doing this. Try, try the next time that you find yourself in a kind of a moaning and complaining spirit, instead of leaning into that, choose to rejoice. And what you will see is that the focus shifts from your problems to the goodness of God. And you'll begin to delight in him as you remember his blessings, as, as you start to see the lavishness of his goodness when before all you could see was your pain. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we are strengthened, we're empowered, but look, it's the joy of the Lord that brings us this strength. See, God has an incredible amount of joy. There's this abundance, boundless joy from our Father, enough joy to set kingdoms laughing, and he wants his kiddos to be doused in it. Uh, here's a couple of, uh, or at least a verse here that talks about the joy. Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven, this is our Father's voice, says, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Jesus brought great joy to the Father. His children bring great joy 
to the Father. We're invited into that joy so that it might sustain us and strengthen us. Found a couple of great quotes this week. The first says, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. You live your life joyfully, people will know you've been in the presence of God. They'll see it. Second quote, joy is the echo of God's life in us. People can hear it. When you live joyful life, they can hear the echoes of God's life in you. And and we are invited to enjoy God and to share that joy with others. There's this ocean of joy that we are invited to dive into. And Christians are told throughout Scripture that we are to rejoice not in the events that cause us suffering, but rather in the Lord. It's not a denial of our pain, but it's rather an opportunity to trust God and to praise Him right in the midst of it. And what I want to do is I want you to picture the, uh, the, the, the twin rails of a train track, if you could. I want you to recognize that there are these twin rails in your life as well, running parallel, and they're running throughout the course of your life. Sometimes we like to think that we go through high times, then we go through low times, and and we sort of think that our life progresses like this. I would suggest to you that there are these twin rails in your life always running. There's always something to be grieved about, some pain to focus on. There's always a legitimate reason to complain. And there's always something good happening, always some reason to rejoice. There are these twin rails. I don't, even in seasons where there is a special amount of pain, there's something to rejoice. And even in seasons when there is all kinds of great blessing to focus on, there's still a cause for grief. There, There are twin rails in your life always. Grief and joy sit side by side in the human heart. But the question is, Which rail are you going to focus on? Which rail are you going to lean your life on? Which rail are you going to be known for? That you embrace the complaining, the grieving, the the, the, the kind of the sourness of life? Or are you going to be known for someone who rejoices, who, who, who leans into the joy of the Lord and receives strength from? This next verse, Psalm 92, oh wait, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. Next fill in, his Holy Spirit produces joy-filled people. His Holy Spirit in our lives produces joy-filled people. The fruit is joy. Acts 13, 52 says, the believers were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Many of you know Galatians 5.22, which talks about all of the fruit that is produced as we walk, recognizing God's spirit lives within us. And you can understand that just as an apple tree produces fruit of apples, the Holy Spirit in your life produces fruit of joy. And so we can exult in the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. He empowers us to walk through difficulty or loss produces his spiritual fruit, the more we yield control of our lives to him. And so we praise God for the transformation in our character that he is working within us as he develops our faith and obedience, regardless of what we're walking through. But friends, the greatest focus of our rejoicing is in the Lord Jesus himself. When you think of his unconditional love for you, When you think of his unfailing faithfulness, when you think of his compassionate understanding, how can we do anything but respond with praise and with gladness? 
See, he has given us his amazing promises, and he will not fail to fulfill them. Psalm 92.4 says, You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. You want to know what to praise God about, what to rejoice in? First, you can praise Jesus for all of the things that he's done. Go back to the work on the cross and the way in which salvation was provided through that sacrifice and the resurrection and how we can live that new life, the resurrected life with God. You can praise and rejoice in that. You think about all of the things that Jesus is doing right now in you. All the ways that right now, today and this week, that he is working and walking with you, God with us. And then you can rejoice in all of the promises that he will fulfill yet. All of the ways in which you know he is going to come through on your behalf. This is a cause for joy. And I'd love for you to hear from a joyful person this morning. I've asked my friend Michael to come. So Michael, why don't you come on up? And he's going to share his story with us today. Yeah, please give him a warm welcome this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Um, hi, my name is Michael Gabriel Bate, and I'm a member of OCC. My parents uh, adopted my sister and I at five and three from Romania. It was quite the miracle, and supernaturally, the whole deal was arranged. Barely getting us out of the country and finalizing the paperwork at the last minute. It was incredible. Our parents raised us as Christians, telling us about the circumstances of our adoption and how astonishing it really was. I have been a believer my whole life since I was saved around four. We grew up going to church. My parents told us about Bible stories and led us to accept Jesus. We were raised going to church, and I've known God is with me. I grew up playing a lot of sports. I'm very energetic. You might have noticed this if you've noticed me jumping around when I'm worshiping. I played almost every sport growing up, had a lot of friends, but I've always been a people pleaser. So in high school, I kind of got into a little bit of trouble and was still a good person, but everything I was doing, I felt guilty about. I didn't understand my relationship with Jesus. I was saved, but it wasn't cool to be a Christian at my school. It was cool to go party. So I did it all under the radar as an athlete, being secretive. After high school, during college, I ended up enrolling in rehab at 19. That was an interesting experience. I had to break down and tell my parents my life was no longer manageable and I was addicted. So I was ready to be sober. Immediately after I got out of rehab, I got diagnosed with cancer. I, have, I had been having migraines leading up to that. It was stage 4A nasal pharyngeal cancer, cancer in my nasal passage, throat, and neck. I did my treatment, chemo and radiation, and I had a feeding tube because the radiation burnt my throat and neck so bad, pumping an Ensure-type liquid and water into my feeding tube and into my body for nutrition. I was in horrible pain from my treatments and the cancer. We did the treatments and the cancer was serious, but it was going down and seemed to be getting better. My birth mom actually came to visit from Romania at the time because the cancer was getting better and it was time to see her son and daughter after almost 17 years. When she was here, I, it was discovered there were two cancerous tumors in my hip, hip bone, which actually broke the bone. This was really serious, now making it a stage 4C diagnosis. The doctors gave me a low percentage to make it based on the development of the cancer to the bones. My parents have been such awesome Christians this whole time, which meant I was getting covered in prayer through it all. 
I was glad to get the prayer because I was desperate, but not really out of, of out of a tangible understanding of God's power. I thought I was going to die of cancer, possibly, and so I submitted myself to God, and God gave me his, his grace and his peace. My parents decided to take me to Florida to a healing revival because they thought Michael is potentially dying pretty soon. So my mom and dad decided to put up the money, and this really reinforced the fact that we are going to go for it and look for big miracles and big things. On our way to Florida, on the last leg of the flight, this man asked to pray for me. I had a wheelchair in the airport with a broken hip from the cancer. Things were not looking good. I wasn't eating or drinking and only had my feeding tube to maintain me. Basically, when we, were, we were, when we were on the airplane and this guy asked to pray for me, my mom was like, yeah, do it. I was really just sitting there out of my mind on all my medications, having lost a lot of my hair and overall suffering. For real, I was like, sure, pray for me. They ended up putting me in first class. That's how bad it was. So he prayed the blood of Jesus over me, among other things. That night, I ate a steak dinner. Before that, I had not been eating or drinking for three months except for the feeding tube. Came back home, and the cancer was gone in my hip bone. I bought a new pair of running shoes and jumped double Dutch jump rope. The physical transformation of the first night when I had a wheelchair uh, to the end of the weekend coming from Florida and skipping jump rope a physical miracle I call it in my life, and we call it in our family, that God worked and God healed. My doctors reinforce that, and I love it, because I believe that science doesn't disprove God, but it reinforces his existence and his creation. I've been cancer-free now for six and a half years, and I'm following Jesus with all my heart. This is what really transformed my life, seeing tangible proof of how that weekend had transpired from sickness to health. I was desperate, but when I saw God's evident hand on my life and the physical healing, like I said, when you actually see that happen in your life and you experience it, it's amazing. I started just being hungry for prayer and helping others, being happy and grateful. You could say I have a lot of joy. I've seen God work, and I love worshiping him. And I try to live with joy no matter what. The best thing that ever happened to me is being diagnosed with cancer. I don't even know how to describe it. I want to thank you for the opportunity to share my testimony with you today to proclaim so you can understand when I'm hopping up and down, dancing and worshiping Jesus, you guys know I have a lot to be joyful about. I think we all do. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. So good, so good. And I've known Michael for a long time. I've heard his story, and, and that's the third time I've heard you share it, Michael. Um, and, I, and I met Michael's folks, and, and uh, his dad's here today as well. And I mean, this is, a, this is an amazing reality that God meets us. And again, that's what we go back to. What can we be joyful about for what Jesus has done? for what he's doing, and for what he will do. There's always a reason to rejoice. Uh, the, the next thing that we see that God with us means is God with us means good news of great joy for all people. And, and that's what the angel talks about. Don't be afraid. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
And this is, the, there is so much of the motivation of Christ found right there, is that, that, that God comes near, Jesus is come to us, a Savior is born, and this is so that we might have great joy, and not just us, but everyone. See, and, and so that, that next point on your outline, Jesus desires our joy to be full. This is his heart for us, for each and every one of us. Now, we don't just have a little bit of joy. We have a fullness of joy. John 15, 11, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He wants us to be filled and overfilled with his joy. Psalm 16, 1 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. You can circle the word fullness. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's the motivation of Jesus. He wants our joy to be complete. But listen, who does he want full joy for? Who does he bring joy to? You know, the, the shepherds are the ones who are hearing this proclamation from the angels that, that, that he is to be called Christ the Lord. It's not that Caesar is Christ. It's not that Herod is Christ. It's that Jesus is Christ. He's Messiah. And this is good news of great joy for all the people. And, and so I want to do this. I, I want to kind of illustrate this in a way that maybe many of you are sort of unfamiliar with. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first book in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible, you can reach into the seat back in front of you. There are some teal Bibles. And if you happen to not have a Bible in your home, just understand, uh, that Bible is our gift to you. You can take that home today. I know they're teal. You thought that was a theft prevention device. But I want you to know today, you can steal the teal. That's uh, just an early Christmas present for you, okay? So now we are here in Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to understand that this is a genealogy and you, you find these from time to time in Scripture. In fact, just by show of hands, how many of you, when you're reading through the Bible and you come to a genealogy, how many of you kind of skip to, to the end when it's over? Anybody? Yeah, that's, so, there are so many sinners in this room right now, just, just humble, honest sinners, all of us. So, um, so here's what I want you to know, that in ancient Israel, bloodlines are very, very important. It's very important uh, where you've come from and, and, it, and people are reckoning their own line because remember this is a tribal community so they're thinking about which tribe am I from and so bloodlines are very important. Not only that, for the Messiah, the prophecies of where the Messiah would come from, which bloodline, it was, it was of vast importance. So that's why you have genealogies kind of scattered throughout the Bible. It's because it was such an important thing for them to reckon their bloodline. Now, what I want you to see in this first chapter, we're not going to read the whole thing, but as you skim chapter 1, this first part of Matthew chapter 1, you will notice that Matthew, he, he's working an angle. He's arguing a case. And I want you to notice five names. There, there are many men that he mentions, some of them good men, some of them immoral men. There are some good kings, there are some bad kings. But I want you to notice that there are five names in this genealogy of women. And this is a big deal. 
This is a big deal. Matthew is including women in the story of Messiah. Jesus, by the way, did include women in the story of his ministry. So this is a, a very inclusive kind of a move in a day where women were not well-valued. Matthew does value them. But I want you to notice the five names, and you might want to circle them in your Bible. The names are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay. Now, the, there's an interesting argument that Matthew is making through this genealogy while he includes these women and, and the, the reason in which he includes these women. And, and the angle that he's trying to work, I'll just give you the conclusion, is that he's working the exact same phrase that the angel said, this is good news of great joy for everyone. So Tamar, let's just quickly talk about Tamar. If you want to read about her, you can read about her in Genesis 38.6. I just want to warn you, this is not a flannel graph Sunday school story. It's very odd. It's kind of a strange to our ears today. And it reminds us that the Bible is about what did happen and not what people wish would have happened. And there's no cleaning up of the facts here. And, uh, and so Tamar is mentioned in the, the genealogy. Through this line comes Messiah, comes Jesus. And, and the story starts with a man named Judah. Judah was a person first, and then he became a tribe, and it's from the tribe of Judah that Jesus is going to be born. And, and, and Judah has a firstborn son named Ur. And apparently, when they ask him what he should name his firstborn son, he wasn't ready for the question, and he went, Ur. Uh, and, oh, Ur, oh, okay, you know. So Ur has a wife named Tamar. Judah arranges this, and so Tamar and Ur are married. Problem, Ur is not a good guy. Maybe a lot of pent-up anger about his name. I don't know, but he was not a good guy. He was wicked in the Lord's sight, and God killed him. This is my favorite Christmas story, by the way. <laughs> now Judah has another son named Onan. And the law of the time, it was a strange law, but the Israelite law of the time, because bloodlines are so important, that if a son died and left a widow but no child, that the father of that son would provide a next son to be married to this woman so that the bloodline could continue. So Judah sends Onan in there, hey bud, go, go be with Tamar. And yet he chose not to. He knew that if they had a child together, that it wouldn't be his son, it would be Ur's son. And so when they were intimate, Onan failed to complete his portion of the deal. <clears throat> and the Bible says that what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death as well. Judah is now two sons down. Tamar is still alive, but he's viewing her like the black widow. And so he has a third son. His third son's name, Shelah, and he knows that he's supposed to give Shelah to Tamar, but uh, he, he does not want to. He doesn't want to lose a third son. And so he kind of puts Tamar off. And Tamar understands what's happening. She understands now that unless Judah does something, that she's going to die childless. And so she comes up with a plan. And many of us, we would come up with a plan. 
Tamar's plan is that she is going to dress up like a prostitute, seduce Judah, her father-in-law, and to get three tokens of his identity. I'm sure the same plan you and I would have come up with on our own. And, and so she does this. She, she has a disguise on, and Judah does not see through the disguise, and so he's intimate with her. About three months later, he hears that she is pregnant. And so he says, well, let's bring Tamar out and burn her to death. Can we agree that men are hypocrites? Let's just agree. Women, you too. Uh, you're hypocrites as well, different way. But, but uh, he's a hypocrite, right? He commits adultery with, with a prostitute, but she's pregnant, so let's burn her. Um, Merry Christmas. Now, they go to Tamar and begin to bring her out to execute her, and this is her response, Genesis 38, 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law saying, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff they are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. And he did not sleep with her again. My favorite Christmas story. Polar Express, Tamar. Now, what's interesting is from that union, she gives birth to twins and the line of Jesus continues. If you're making this stuff up, do you include the story of Tamar and Judah? Do you, do you see, this is not one of those examples of let's, let's whitewash everything, pretend it all away, make it nice and rosy and Christmas card-like. But Matthew is arguing an angle because he's saying, look, this is good news of great joy for everyone, Tamar included. And then the next name that he mentions is Rahab. And if you know the story of Rahab, she is a prostitute, not a dress-up, disguise, and seduce father-in-law prostitute, just prostitute by trade. And yet she plays a role in the genealogy of Jesus. And the next name is Ruth, and Ruth has her own book in the Bible. She's this amazing character, this amazing heart, but you see, Ruth is a Moabite. She was not of the line of Israel, of any of the tribes of Israel. How big are bloodlines? They're very important, but... Can Ruth be a part of it? Absolutely. The next name is Bathsheba. And if you know the story of King David, you know that Bathsheba enters into the story through adultery and through deception and through trying to cover up sin and even in murder. Bathsheba is a part of the story and then the line of Messiah continues. And I just want you to understand that each and every one of these episodes is Matthew's way of saying, look, the angels proclaim it. Good news, great joy for everyone, but the genealogy backs it up, that this is exactly what God is working from ages past to this present time when Christ 
the Messiah, Jesus comes. This is God bringing joy for everyone. And if you're filling in the blanks, that's what it is. God with us means joy for everyone, everywhere, no exceptions. Even in this passage of a genealogy that many of us choose to skip over, the the Holy Spirit of God works to, to bring Scripture to this powerful punch that, oh, I see what's going on, that, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, God with us means great joy for everyone, not just for the people who play nice, the people who follow all the rules, the people who have excellent hygiene, the people who invest their money wisely. No, the announcement of the angels and the illustration of genealogy is to highlight the same truth that Jesus really has come for everyone. In church, so often we need to be awakened to this reality, the, the absolute power and amazement of the grace of God. As followers of Jesus, we have earned nothing. That we don't deserve all of the good things that Jesus pours out on us. We are not entitled to his grace. We we don't have a claim on his joy. Uh, But far too often, we are tempted to think that we do. And we are tempted to think that, that, you know, the folks out there, they're the ones who are unsavory. They've fallen too far. They've sinned too much. That, that, that they're beyond the limits of God's grace. We can reach out to these over here, but not these over here. No, no, we can't reach them. And we become exactly like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We become the, the, the ones who judge instead of the ones who are amazed at the joy we're invited into. And so today, friends, I want to tell you, we reject that kind of judgment. We reject any limitations that humans would want to place on how good God's love really is and how limitless his grace really is and how the good news of great joy really is for all people. And I want to say to you very clearly, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It doesn't matter your age, your race, what you earn, who you root for, what your clothing style is, what your past has been like, how you define yourself when you look at yourself sexually. That doesn't matter. What matters is the singular question. Is your heart open to the joy of Jesus Christ or isn't it? That's the only thing that matters. And so friends, what we wanna do, we wanna be dispensers of this kind of joy. We wanna be participants in the joy that comes from Jesus and then sharers of it as well. And and where we're tempted to hold back, Jesus says, go on, go on. And in the most humble of situations in the most unexpected and unusual way, in such a way that no one would ever predicted or expected the arrival of the God of the universe, Jesus, to connect with the humble, came as humbly as possible. Instead of kings and priests surrounding him, he had cows and geese and animals greeting him. Instead of dignitaries, he's got shepherds, the low of the lowliest of the low in his day. And the point is, 
Good news of great joy for everyone. You know, mankind's biggest argument against God, humankind's argument has always been, God, you don't know what it's like down here. You don't know what it's like to be cold. You don't know what it's like to be depressed or to be poor, to be ridiculed or betrayed. You don't know what it's like to be abandoned or mocked or anxious or misunderstood. You don't know what it's like down here. And Christmas is God's way of saying, actually, I do. I know exactly what it's like. I'm not devoid or detached. I have come near. And Jesus has experienced the ugliest of life that there is to offer. And at the same time, he says, the joy I bring is for everyone. The good news I bring is for everyone. And he uses the Tamars and the Rahabs. He uses the Ruths. He uses the Bathshebas and the Mike Howertons to redeem everything. He's not far away. He's not removed. He's not distant. And I say this knowing that some of you, when you came here today, you felt like you had to get cleaned up to do it. You felt like you had to to put on a mask to hide who you are, that maybe if you just came as you were, that you'd be judged. Maybe you felt like your spiritual lineage wasn't up to snuff and You didn't know how you were going to be treated today. So friends, I just want to tell you, the joy of Jesus is for you. The joy of Jesus is for you. It's it's for each and every one of us, and not us alone. It's for the world. And that's why this morning I want to encourage you to choose joy, that you would embrace joy today, that you would choose joy the joy that comes from Jesus. And we talk a lot about the cross. We talk a lot about Jesus at Overlake. And the reason is because it's on the cross that Jesus provides us joy. It's on the cross that he provides us the forgiveness that we've been talking about, the salvation that we're so desperate for. And so I just want to tell you that, that you don't need to wait until Christmas to receive the ultimate gift there is that right now you can receive the gift of Jesus, that literally you can open this gift today and you can begin a relationship of love that starts now and lasts for eternity. And so would you do this? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads and, and let's pray together. I know that there are many in this room who already have relationship with Jesus. You already sense the joy that I'm talking about, but maybe it's not full joy. It's not complete joy. And so, Jesus, what we ask as your followers is we just ask that we would know more of you, that we would understand more of your limitless love and grace. We would understand more of how you wrap your arms around us and comfort us and carry us, and you bring us your joy no matter what's going on. Please, Lord, let us live as participants in your joy and sharers of it. And then I'm also aware that there are those in this room who maybe have never said yes to you, Jesus. They've never begun a relationship. And right now, I pray that, that your spirit would just bring them courage and that they would be willing to step across the line and say, Jesus, I, I want that joy. I, I want to be in relationship with you, that, 
a relationship that starts now and as I learn more about you and as I follow you and a relationship that goes on forever and ever. I ask that you'd write my name in the book of life and you'd allow me to rejoice in that fact today. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for being with us. God with us, that's the greatest truth that we know. And we wanna thank you and praise you. We wanna rejoice in the fact that you are with us, listening to our prayers and walking with us every step of the way. We pray it in your name, amen.